with Rome. And so whatever oppressive uh, activities Rome did, the high priests and the religious authorities of the day tended to back them up. So that's who we're dealing with here. Peter and John are brought before these high priests. And what do they want to know? They don't want to know how they can, they can get into some of this healing power. They don't want to know, uh, you know, where we can send Peter and John to go heal other people who are sick. They don't want to know who, in whose name they are going around healing. What they want to know is by what authority, by what power do you heal this person? Do you do the things that you're doing? Where do you get your authority? Where do you get the power to go about doing this? And I can tell you this, they're starting to be a little bit nervous. The reason they got arrested is because we are told in Acts that Peter baptized 5,000 people on the heels of this wonderful event and, and with, the, with all the stuff that's going on. That starts to make powerful people nervous. And so these folks are concerned about where they think they're getting their power. Of course, Peter goes on to give another speech, wonderful speech. Everyone's surprised at how eloquent Peter can be all of a sudden. But Peter is giving another speech about how the name of Christ that the name of Jesus is where Peter is authority. And I've been thinking about this question of, of power and authority, because that seems to be what is of concern here. The high priest sees their authority under threat, their power under threat by all this happening. And if anyone can go around and start healing people in the name of Jesus, then what? You know, they're going to be out of job, they're going to be out of money, they're going to be out of all kinds of stuff. So they're, they've got a vested interest in keeping things the way that they are. But Peter points out that the power and authority resides with Jesus Christ. And they've got to think about authority. Where do we, where do we invest our authority? To what do we hand authority over to? And, you know, of course, the first obvious uh, thing that comes to mind is the Bible, right? Our holy scriptures, these wonderful, wonderful words of life. In fact, we're told in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed and useful in rebuking and correcting and teaching in, uh, in the ways of righteousness. And so we are told that, and oftentimes people quote that and, and they want to treat the Bible as though it kind of fell from the sky all written out in God's hand right, you know, that it just kind of appeared out of nowhere all put together and ready to go bound up and published by Sonderman <laughs> and sent to us by God just like that. But you know, that isn't actually how we got the scriptures. It isn't actually how they took it took like 300 years of wrangling and wrestling before we decided on what I call the agreed upon canon. And by, by canon, I mean that we had through a process as, as Christian people to determine these were sacred texts. And we call that the Bible. And I gotta say, not all Christians have the same Bible. Catholic Church has different, different books involved. The Orthodox Church has different books in their Bible. So we're, you know, just because we have this canon, uh, you know, not all Christians even 
necessarily agreeing on what should be there. But, you know, suffice to say, we wrestled with all of these different texts and these different books about how to put them together and which ones were important and which ones weren't. And, and, you know, so it didn't just fall out of the sky. What makes these texts sacred are not, are not so much how they came together, and it's not even about who wrote them or even when, you know, uh, even proving how inspired they are. Sometimes we, we latch on to, to great stories about, how, about scriptures and, and things like this in order to give them credence and, and to make them valid, make arguments about how God's been working. The, but but I, I don't want to be dismissive of that, but what really makes scripture valid is the truth that it speaks to our hearts. Amen? What makes Scripture valid is the truth that it speaks. The reason we are still reading this 2,000 years later, if you go to the Old Testament, 3,000 years later, the reason we are still reading these wonderful words of life is because they speak life into us. They speak truth. It's not who said it, it's what it says. And we're not reading Greek myth anymore because... Quite frankly, it doesn't apply. It doesn't really fit our life anymore. But these texts have stood the test of time. They have been tested over and over again for 2,000 years. And we are still, we are still needing truth from it and finding direction in our life and finding our way in the dark and bringing light. And it is still wonderful words of life that guide our movements in the world and help us make sense of the world around us. That's why it's sacred. That's why it's helpful. That's why it's useful. Is because it contributes to our life. I will say, though, that in the last few years, by few, I mean a couple hundred, uh, the, we, have, we have had a tendency to really emphasize the Bible in a way that negates a lot of other things and almost makes the Bible an idol, right? We, we tend to, you know, when we treat it as if it's, you know, it is solidly written in our time, and we try to look at it with a modern lens, and we think that everything is infallible, and God said it, I believe it, that settles it, then we, we tend to turn the Bible into an idol, instead of leaning from really what, what is what is God trying to speak? What truth is being brought to us? Uh, over the centuries, in these ancient texts, we really need to understand the context and, and the things that were going on at the time, the intention of the original authors, and, and things to that effect, to really glean those truths from it. And we, when we turn it into something that can't even be discussed or looked at critically, we have turned it into an and so there are other places, and I'll remind you of this, that, that the revelation of God comes to us not in a book, but in a person. God has revealed God's self to us in a person. That person is Jesus Christ. Amen. So it is a person who has been, who has revealed to us who God is. And we read about that person in, in Scripture. But it is the personage of Jesus who, who reveals who God is to us. But so, so we have it. I think the way we can balance these out is to recognize that we we have authority not just from the Bible, but from other places as well. 
For example, the, the community is a space that where we get spiritual authority. It is a place of authority. And by community, I mean the Christian community as a whole. We have traditions and we have we have doctrine and statements and things to that effect that have authority in what Christianity is. But then when you bring it down even to the congregational level, we as a congregation uh, we have authority to shape our lives in a particular way. And we pull on different traditions that help us make sense and guide us and give us vision and mission. Uh, for example, you know, we feel, uh, we, we read in scriptures and we feel called to be people who are ministering outside of our own walls and out into the hurt and broken world. Not to convert people, but just to contribute to the good of the world. We, those are those are authoritative ideals and values that drive our lives together. Amen. And we got a lot of those that, that kind of have authority. We we value intergenerational worship together. That is an ideal and value that drives who we are, and, and that has a certain amount of authority in how we shape it. That's why we. Sing guitar songs and organ songs all together. And folks who hate guitars have to endure that. And folks who hate the organ have to endure that. So that we can worship together. Amen. <laughs> Amen. And those things have important. The other thing is that we, we kind of, uh, the, the congregation kind of holds authority over the life of the church. That is to say, church works best. When we discern together where God is taking us. Now, some churches structure themselves in a much more hierarchical way, where there is a person in authority who kind of tells everyone where, what the vision is, and everyone kind of buys into that and moves it in a different way. I gotta tell you, that's a lot more efficient. <laughs> but that's not who we are. Who we are is we're a collective, we, we discern God's vision together. We, wrestle with a lot of different ideas and we move in a particular direction. We feel God's Holy Spirit at work uh, in our life together. And that's, that has authority. That says, this is who we are, this is where we are going. Amen? And it gets messy. And it gets tricky. And, and yet, that is what makes our life together so dynamic and effective. We can minister to our context in a way that we collectively feel God moving us together. What a blessing. The other thing that uh, happened that I think has authority in our spiritual life uh, as individuals in particular is our own experiences. I think we I think we blow this one off far too often. You have had experiences with Jesus Christ all on your own, and those reveal things to you about who God is and about who you are. I guarantee this young man who was healed by Jesus Christ, I guarantee you he has his own experience and own ideas about Jesus that no one can ever understand again, right? He has been healed in a way that most of us have not experienced. Some of us may have, but most of us have not. And I guarantee you he went around kind of sucking up all kinds of information about who is this Jesus? I don't want to know a little bit more about that. And his own experience 
dictating to him who this Jesus really is. Someone tried to tell us how Jesus doesn't really heal people all day. He's the first man ever goes, wait a minute, that's not true. Look at me, Instagram. <laughs> right? Wait a minute, I know who Jesus is. Jesus is the healer for this person. So we have our we have our own experiences. In fact, today we baptize two uh, gentlemen who came to the baptismal waters. And th this is a great illustration of authority. I don't have authority to give these guys salvation. And in fact, the water doesn't give these guys salvation. The water is just water. We don't, I don't bless it. We don't, we don't, you know, it's not holy water or anything like that. It's just water. Baptism in the Baptist faith is, is entirely symbolic. And it's important, you know, you know, this is another one of those things that we carry over from our community. The early, earliest Baptists in the English Reformation uh, kind of eschewed uh, the idea of, of sacraments that imbued God's Holy Spirit in people and just saw the, the ordinances as strictly symbolic. Symbolic of a personal, private experience the near and near we already had. They already know Jesus in their heart and hearts. They already have experienced an infilling of the Holy Spirit. And they are just going into the baptismal waters to obey Christ and show the rest of the world that they are committed to that experience that they've had. This is the ultimate expression of what has authority in our lives. Those are experience with God that plays out in community and is affirmed as we read scriptures. And so I gotta tell you, sometimes I read scriptures and I'm like, this, this doesn't match my experience. And I have to look deeper and try to understand well, what, where is the author? What's the author's experience that I'm trying to do? For example, there's some violent places in the Bible, some violent things. Some of it is pretty graphic, in, in fact, and people celebrate about violence and stuff like that. I look back and I'm like, wait a minute. Jesus is the, the Prince of Peace, uh, the one who eschews violence and, and preaches against it. So how do I understand this? Well, I have to understand who's writing that. When are they writing it? Under what conditions are they experiencing? You know, what are the things that are going on in their life? Then it starts to make sense. Oh, oppressed people. Violence looks like justice. <laughs> I see. Okay. I see. It's like a friend of mine, uh, one of my South Africa, and uh, he used to tell me, you can't understand books like Revelation unless you live through apartheid. It all starts to make sense when you live in apartheid, and you're praying for a cataclysmic end of the world that brings about justice. So, my point is that we, our own experience informs us as we go, and our own experience with who God is informs us and shapes us and informs and shapes this community and becomes a lens through which we see the Bible and the Bible starts to make sense. And what I want to say is those are all legitimate and affirmed. They all have authority in our lives together, in, in our life together, and in in the faith community in general. We have that. That's where we view and invest our, invest our authority.
dealt with in a, in a practical way in our community, in our tradition, in our own wonderful experiences that we have with God. Amen? Let's pray. Loving and gracious God, as we listen to, to the story about Peter and John being confronted on issues of authority and acknowledging that it is the Holy Spirit at the center of all of those things uh, that is ultimately responsible for pointing us in the right direction and enlightening us and showing us what is real. May we uh, avoid giving authority over in a way that steals our own experiences or the experience of our community that idolizes certain things over other things. But may we find our authority invested in who you are in our hearts and lives. We ask all this in the power of the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to invite